Well, hey guys, it's good to good to see you all tonight. Even though um, I say that every week, I mean it every week. It really is good to see you all. And I must say, I'm impressed that this many of you showed up while uh, the basketball game is going on. Um, so thanks for being here. Thanks for um, making making this a valued part of your evening. And if you're wondering, uh, the Wildcats are up by ten in the third third quarter. Just checked. Um, so. But yeah, if, if you and I haven't met, my name's Andrew. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. And, uh, you know, our hope uh, is that whether during calm times or crazy busy times of the semester, that this would be a place for you to come and take a load off and rest and, um, and encourage one another to find rest and shelter in Christ. That's, that's why we're here. So if you're stressed, uh, you've come to the right, come to the right place. Um, this is actually going to be our last sermon in our series of First Thessalonians. We've still got some more large groups coming, but this is the last passage in Paul's letter, uh, our last in our series where we're looking at this future hope that we have in Christ's return that has been an ancient hope ever since uh, the days of Christ 2,000 years ago. And so we've been asking the question, what does that mean for us today? Um, and so, really, before we pray and jump into this passage, I just want to acknowledge that there's a bunch of like commands. Maybe you noticed that when Shelby was reading out loud. It just seems like a litany or like a flurry of imperatives. And I heard, I heard a, a pastor once give this analogy, and I thought it was helpful. He said, Paul, in this passage, is kind of like a loving, concerned parent of a college student, where they, you know, maybe it's your mom or your dad has written you a long letter or a long email and has reminded you of how much they love you and care for you, maybe given some updates on what's going on at home. And then kind of as they're like wrapping things up and running out of space, maybe at the very end, uh, they just hit you with like, yeah, uh, study hard, uh, get some sleep, you know, do your laundry, make sure your room is tidy. Love mom, love dad. And so this pastor was saying that this, this is kind of what Paul is doing. Um, this would have been really most likely the only New Testament scripture that this faith community had. They would have had the Old Testament, but this was likely the only New Testament, the only explicit uh, gospel message about Jesus that they would have received. And Paul's just kind of making sure they know everything they need to know to walk with Jesus. And so one of the things that I hope we see is that all these commands really um, highlight for us what the mark of a healthy family is, even the family of faith. So that's what we're going to be talking tonight about tonight. But before we jump in, let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we ask that you would, by your spirit, give all of us ears to hear and eyes to see glorious things spoken of your son Jesus in and through your word tonight. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Some of you I know are fans of the hit NBC show, This Is Us. Uh, that's a show that Amanda and I have, have gotten into. And um, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's a drama. It follows the Pearson family and they do a lot of flashback and flash forward. So it kind of traces this family through multiple stages of life. And one of the things that's almost immediately apparent about the Pearson family is that they're a family that has a lot of love to give, but they're also really dysfunctional. And 
that really comes to a head in season two when Kevin, one of the three children, one of the, the big three, when he gets a DUI and has to go to rehab. And so in, in season two, episode 11, The Fifth Wheel, is the name of the episode, there's this scene where Kevin and his siblings and his mom, they're all in this big group therapy session with a counselor. And they're working through um, a lot of that dysfunction that I alluded to earlier. In fact, the conversations, they really get heated. They start having arguments. Um, voices get raised. Accusations get made. It's this really tense moment in the show, in the, in the entire series. But one of the beautiful things about that moment in that episode is that it's in the midst of that conflict where breakthroughs start to happen. And so at the very end of the episode, you see the the big three, Kevin um, and Kate and Randall, sitting on a park bench, actually working things out in love with one another. It wasn't possible before, um, before that group therapy session. Here's why I bring this up. All families are at least a little bit dysfunctional. All families are at least a little bit dysfunctional. And really the difference between a healthy family and an unhealthy family is that healthy families acknowledge their dysfunction and they seek to change. And like the Pearsons, they engage in those messy arguments and conflicts so that there can be growth and reconciliation within the family and among them. And so the reason I say this is because in this passage, in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Paul considers the church, the, the community of Christians, as a family. You might have noticed how many times he uses the word brothers, or it could be translated brothers and sisters. If you didn't notice it, I'll point it out to you. It's in verse 12. It's in verse 14. Verse 25. We didn't read these last several verses, but I'll include it. Verse 25, verse 26, verse 27. comes up a bunch. So Paul is addressing the family of faith. And based on the commands that he gives, that we were talking about earlier, we see that the mark of a healthy family, the mark of our healthy family as being the family of God, is that we pursue health in relationships. It's not that there's no dysfunction, but it's that we're actually working towards reconciliation in love towards one another. And so tonight, I want to look at three ways in which we pursue health in relationships. And that's in your outline. It's we pursue health in our relationships with our leaders, with the least, and with the Lord. So let's just jump in. How do we pursue health in our relationships with our leaders? Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. In in those verses, Paul is asking us, the family of faith, to respect our leaders. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And what I want to point out is that Paul is saying, Paul is telling us not to respect our leaders because somehow they're better than others or more important than others, but to, to point to Paul's own words, because of their work. Because of the fact that the Lord has placed leaders, whether that's religious leaders or church leaders or, you know, leaders here at the college administration or whether that's, you know, civic government leaders, the Lord has placed leaders over us and among us to care for us, 
to you in some way or multiple different ways to protect us, to, res- to um, represent us, to provide for us, to guide us. We're to respect them for their work. And before I say another word, I just want to like, just want to point out that it's not natural for us. It's not natural for Americans to respect our leaders, um, to esteem them highly in love, to use Paul's language. In fact, it's actually natural and a lot more easy, uh, a lot easier to complain about our leaders, to gripe about our leaders. But God calls us to love and to respect them. Uh, when I was in seminary, I remember, like in the middle of seminary, I remember grabbing coffee with a friend of mine. And I'll confess that when we sat down, I actually started to complain about my pastor and about his leadership, um, about his preaching. I was just complaining to my friend about it, kind of hoping that I would get an accomplice or someone that would say, oh yeah, let me tell you about how bad my pastor is. It's kind of ironic now that I think about it, <laughs> given, given my choice of vocation. Um, but my friend did something um, which he doesn't even know how much this meant or, and still means to me now. But he looked at me and he asked me, he said, Andrew, have you been praying for him? Have you been praying for your pastor? And like he didn't ask it in a condescending tone, but right then and there, I was just cut to the heart because the answer was no, I had not been praying for my pastor. I've been complaining about my pastor. Which leaders are you tempted to complain about? Maybe like me, you're tempted to complain about your pastors or your spiritual leaders. Maybe it's other leaders here at Davidson. Maybe it's President Quillen. Maybe it's a coach or a trainer. Uh, Maybe it's a professor. Maybe it's outside of Davidson, but maybe it's your government leaders, your congressmen, congresswomen, your senators. President Trump, have you been praying for them? Another friend of mine, this is not the same friend that asked me the question, but another friend of mine more recently, I heard him say this in a sermon. He said, you get the leaders you pray for. You get the leaders you pray for. And so I just want to ask you, and I'm asking myself this question too, do you want strong, wise, compassionate, godly leaders? If so, then pray for them. That's the first step in respecting our leaders, in pursuing health in our relationship with our leaders. And that's how uh, we love them, uh, really by praying for them. So we've seen that we need to pursue health in relationship with our leaders, but In verse 14, uh, Paul transitions and and shows us that we need to pursue health in relationship with the least. So he goes from leaders to least. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What do the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak have in common? 
These are all people or types of people that are not going to help you get to where you want to go. These are folks that are not going to be resume boosters for you. They're not going to necessarily be a good reference for you. They're not going to help you network with people that you want to network. These are people who would inconvenience you, who would take up your time. These are needy people. These are people that Jesus would consider the poor in spirit or the least of these. And Paul and Jesus are, are telling us that they're the ones that we need to pursue relationships with, to love, to care for. And really, and I want to ask, why does he, why does Paul in particular urge us to care for these people? And I want to point out two reasons. One, I think Paul knows we don't need to be reminded to pursue the people that we like and the people that are like us. That's something that we naturally want to do. So he's, he's asking us to do something that's not natural. And then secondly, the second reason is the family of God, Christians, the church, we need to be reminded to pursue those that the world rejects because Jesus pursues those whom the world rejects. And so take a second and imagine with me, imagine that you're a high school student in a high school cafeteria. You've just gotten your food, you've got your tray, you've just walked out of the serving area and now you're looking for a place to sit. And so you look out on your cafeteria and in the middle, there's a bunch of tables and that's where all the, the athletes sit where the popular girls, the popular guys sit. It's where all the honor students sit. That's where your friends are. And then you look kind of on the outskirts of the cafeteria, and especially in the corners. And that is where you're going to see the foreign exchange students, the ESL students. That's where you're going to see the special needs students, those that maybe are socially awkward. And as you're imagining this scenario, I just want to, I want, I want to ask, where are you going to go sit? Where do you want to sit? And as you consider that, imagine if Jesus showed up. He had just gotten his food. He's got his tray in his hands. Where does he want to go sit? Where is he going to go sit? In these verses, in verses 14 and 15, Paul is telling us to go to the outskirts and the corners of the cafeteria because that's where Jesus goes. He goes to the least. He goes to the poor. And so I, I just want to ask, do you want a closer relationship with Jesus? Do you want to know him more intimately? Go where he goes. Follow him. Break out of your inner circle and pursue the outsider the poor, the friendless, the socially awkward, the faint-hearted, the idle, the weak. Pursue those people. And I just want to ask, who are those people here at Davidson in your life? Take some time to think about them. Who are those folks that might inconvenience you, who might, who might take up your time? Who are the needy? Those are the folks that we, as the family of God, are called to pursue. We need to pursue them in relationships. And so to bring it really close to home and make a really practical point, why not think about inviting them to the Thanksgiving dinner on Friday night? 
just going to throw that out there and let you chew on it and trust that the Lord might do something there. But, um, but that's the, in essence, that is what Paul is challenging us to think about and to do. So we're to pursue health in our relationships with our leaders, with the least, and then finally, and ultimately with the Lord. And this is where Paul goes, starting in verse 16. And as we kind of consider this third relationship, um, I just want to highlight the fact that in, in the scriptures, our relationship with the Lord is oftentimes compared to a marriage. And so as we think about pursuing health in our relationship with the Lord, um, I want us to think about what, so, so any marriage, um, in every marriage, in any marriage, you need to think about kind of love languages and learn to speak each other's love language. And I actually want us to consider that in relationship with the Lord. What's his love language? What's our love language? So that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to consider here. And so in verses 16 through the rest of the passage, um, Paul is showing, showing us two things. We need to learn to speak God's love language, and then we need to listen to him speak our love language. So look with me at verses 16 and 18, 16 through 18. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's a, it's a bunch of do's. So as we learn to speak the Lord's love language, he gives us a whole set of do's. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is how we speak his love language. What does that look like? What Paul is getting at is not, he's not challenging us or telling us like, just put on a happy face all the time. You just need to be, when anyone asks you how you're doing, you need to, you need to say, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome. That's not what Paul is getting at. But rather, I think what Paul is getting at is that we need to learn to delight more and more in the Father's love and joy over us. Um, another friend of mine uh, who is also a, a, a pastor, he said in a sermon, uh, he challenged the congregation to, quote, open the sunroof on your inner monologue. Open the sunroof on your inner monologue. And the challenge was, or the context was, this is how you go about praying without ceasing. Take that inner monologue, whatever it is that's rattling around in your head, open the sunroof, direct it to the Lord, engage the Lord with all of your thoughts, all of your dreams, desires, fears, emotions. That's how you live a praying life, so to speak. And one of the things that I want us to see is that when, when we do that, when we open up the sunroof on our inner monologue, we need to actually look up and see the Father smiling down on us as adopted sons and daughters. Um, I feel like I use my kids as illustrations a lot. Um, maybe, Amanda, maybe we should invest in some counseling uh, right now for them for the future um, if they ever go back and listen to these. Um, but... Um, about a year or two ago, uh, when Emma was a little bit younger, uh, we were in the daily rhythm and habit of going on runs together in the jogging stroller. And the jogging stroller had this canopy that you could, you know, cover to provide shade, protect against any like water. Not, not that I was running in the rain a bunch, but you get the, you get the idea. In that canopy, there's a little flap that you can pull back and there's like that, 
I don't know what it is, like a nylon plastic window. And so, anyway, we would run with the canopy down with the flap open. And on one run, this is when Emma was really little, I heard this faint, tiny little voice say, Hi. This is really before she started to learn how to talk. And so I was like, wait a second. Did that just really come from the stroller? And then a few steps later, I heard it again. Hi. And so I peered over, looked down, and there she was, just her head back, just smiling up at me, looking at me. And what she saw, whether or not, I mean, I can guarantee she does not remember this, but if she could remember what she saw, she saw her father just beaming, just so excited and happy to be with his daughter, um, to be engaging with his daughter, even, even when she's, you know, so tiny, can't even have a conversation. That's, that's what I want us to have in mind. That's when Paul talks about rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It's out of this relationship that we have with the Father. It's out of this security and the confidence that we have knowing that he, when he looks at us, he smiles upon us. He is well pleased because our life is hid with Christ on high. So that's We need to learn to speak his love language. There's a bunch of do's. There's also a bunch of don'ts. If you kept reading in verses 19 through 22, Paul says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So I want to take these in turn, but I also want to kind of go through them somewhat quickly. Um, But go back and look at 19. When Paul says, Don't quench the spirit. In essence, what he's saying is, don't ignore the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and in your midst. And don't, um, uh, don't hoard his gifts that he gives you, but rather use them. Um, maybe a helpful, maybe turning that negative into a positive using another letter of Paul's. Uh, fan the gift of the Holy Spirit into flame. That's the spirit of love that casts out a spirit of fear. Fan that into flame. When he says, um, uh, do not despise the prophecies, um, we're not to have this kind of arrogant posture over God's revealed word and put ourselves over what he has prophesied. But rather, we're to humble ourselves and to put ourselves under the word and to listen uh, for God speaking to us as he promises to do through his through his holy word. And then also abstain from every evil. Um, He's basically saying, don't even dabble or don't even mess with any form of evil. The way that the writer of Proverbs puts it is he, he, he talks about a man holding a fire next to his chest. He says, can a man hold a fire next to his chest and not be burned? You need to flee. You need to flee from evil. And all of this, combined the do's and the don'ts, all of this is how we learn to speak God's love language. But as we talk a lot about God's love language, you might be wondering, well, what about our love language? I mean, it's, it's one thing for us to learn to speak his love language. What about him speaking our love language? And it's as if Paul anticipates that and goes and tells us what the Lord, what, what our love language is and, and, and shows us that we need to listen for God speaking it. Look at, look at verse 23. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then in verse 28, this is not in your handout, but he ends the letter with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Every human being, every human being needs to hear divine words of blessing, of love, of acceptance, of assurance. We all need to hear that spoken over us. It's what we were made for. And Paul told, shows us that that's what we have. If we would just listen, we would hear God speaking our love language. I think this is one of the things that made and keeps Mr. Rogers so popular and relevant is because in a really beautiful way, he grasped this truth. He recognized, no one else was doing this, but he recognized that every child needs to know that they are loved, cherished, and accepted as they are, and not just for what they could be or what they should be. And that is what we see the Lord promising us here in his word. There's a reason why Paul ends his letter on this note. It's because in order to pursue health in our relationships with our leaders, with the least, with the Lord, we need to know that somebody is pursuing us. And so what Paul is saying is that because our God pursues us, we can pursue others. Because, or we can love because he first loved us. And so we can pursue because he first pursued us. And so when you think about how hard it is to pursue other people, especially difficult people, remember how Jesus considered it a joy to pursue you, even while you were difficult to love and pursue while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in our relationship uh, to God, we need to think of ourselves as the least, as the poor in spirit, as the needy. Because of our sinful, hard, stubborn, rebellious hearts, we're the ones sitting on the outside of the cafeteria. We are the ones sitting as outcasts on the outskirts and corners of God's kingdom. And yet at, the, at that time, Jesus came for us. He left heaven to come to the outskirts to redeem and adopt you and me and to bring us into his family. And he went to the cross to die for difficult people like you and like me, and he considered it a joy to do so. It's only when that reality really hits you and makes its way deep into your heart that you would consider it a joy and will consider it a joy to go and love difficult people. It's sometimes it's even hard. Um, it's hard to love even those people that you like. And even then, you need to know that the Lord considered it a joy to pursue you and to go after you. Um, 
So I'll say this and I'll stop. Um, there's no denying that relationships are really hard and messy and difficult. But if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, then remember that you have over you the Father's infinite love, blessing, and acceptance. And you have within you the Spirit's infinite power, enabling you to actually go and do what is difficult or even what is impossible, to love those that are hard to love. And so if you have that, if you've got the Father's infinite blessing over you, if you've got the Spirit's infinite power within you, what more do you need? So brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you, let's follow Jesus together in pursuing health in our relationships with our leaders, with the least, with the Lord. Let's do that today and until Jesus comes back. Amen? Now let's pray.